Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What a Kyle Saka's world, and we're all just living in it. This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, the Buckman, Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I don't have an inflatable unicorn, but if I did, I would be riding it in honor of our hero, our savior, our young uh, rescuer of all things dark and evil, Bukayo Saka. He is the joy of the football world right now, and certainly the Arsenal world. We're going to talk about Bukayo Saka, maybe a little bit about England too, um, and we're going to do that with Tim and Paul, but we're not going to do that just yet, because first, we're going to do it with Andrew Mangan. You may know him as Arsblog. That's where you can find him on Twitter. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Elliot. How are you? I'm good. I want to talk about Bukayo Saka, but first, we have limited time. I'd like to devote a good chunk of it to really digging into William Saliba. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> so one thing you told me, you won't tell hang, hang out of here. Bye. <laughs> Have a good one. No, I'm kidding. We're not. We're not going to bring anybody down like that. We're going to talk about our our the man who uh, strides the world on on an inflatable unicorn, and that is Bukayo Saka. Yeah. Um, look, I don't know how you where you are on the rooting for England or not rooting for England thing, but it's been you know a hell of a journey for for England in the Euros and. I, I feel like maybe I'm too much in the Arsenal bubble, but I feel like Bukayo Saka has been a big part of that story. I mean, in terms of just the way this kid seems to be infectious with the joy he brings to people, the way he can just have this sort of quiet confidence that he exudes without coming across like a prick like some young uh, Tyros can. He's just, he's a real joy. And, and, and for me, I mean, he's been the thing that's, that's made this tournament come to life for me. Well, certainly from an England perspective, you know, where where I am on the rooting for England thing is complicated. Obviously, I'm very well aware that, um, you know, I'm an Irish guy who supports an English team. But, you know, there's, there's a little bit of history between Ireland and England and certainly uh, between England and the rest of the world when it comes to sporting things. But I really love to see Bakayo Saka do well. And I think the fact that he has become part of this what I think is a really exceptional England story, all things considered, when you think about what happened pre-tournament, the sort of opinions of Gareth Southgate, um, you know, all the stuff that was going on before the tournament, the fact that he has become a big integral part of it, I think is great. You know, I, I love to see it. I think a lot of people listening to this, and I know it's my experience from speaking to people who who became Arsenal fans in other parts of the world, did so on the back of big tournaments, like they saw Dennis Bergkamp at, at World Cup 98 or something, and, and that goal against Argentina, and they were like, what, who is this guy? I love him. Who does he play for? Arsenal, cool, I'm in. Mm-hmm. And I think there might be some of that going on with Bakayo Saka as well. If he isn't generating a whole new generation of, of Arsenal fans across the world, that there's something wrong. It's just brilliant, isn't it? And it's wholesome and it's good. And we, you know, um, how do I say this? We can get caught up, I think, sometimes in the 
the minutiae of football, like every small, tiny little thing matters. And sometimes we lose sight of the fact that a 19-year-old on the pitch doing what he does is basically the most joyful, wholesome thing about football, and we should all enjoy it. Um, it's great. I, I think it's great for him. It's obviously great for England. It's been great for the tournament. And, and ultimately, I think it is going to be of benefit to Arsenal even if it may have an impact on the start of next season from his perspective. You know what's unusual, though, <clears throat> is like just the likability and that sort of quiet confidence, but quiet yeah. joy. Like Because, you know, there are the pictures going around of his teammates carrying him around after the game and everyone in the mm -hmm. camp seems to love him. And I think of like some of the brilliant young players Arsenal have had. Cesc Fabregas, who I think for both of us is one of our, our favorite Arsenal players, um, was a prick, but he was our prick. Jack Wilshire, spiky as hell, but I loved mm -hmm. him because he was ours. Saka doesn't have that. And sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking, oh, if you're a nice player, you won't make it to the elite level, that you have to have that spikiness. But you watch him, you know, up against the touchline, turning a defender and bursting past him. And, you know, the, the little darting runs in behind and the way he feels confident taking mm. a man on in a semifinal of the Euros. He, he plays like someone who would have that sort of spiky confidence, but he doesn't have that aspect to his character. Can you, I mean, is that sort of a unique thing for you, a player who's sort of this uniquely calm and quiet and likable but but exudes that confidence on the pitch i think no i don't think it's unique i mean i think there have been footballers who've been very good and also very nice i think sometimes we get mixed up in this idea that that um, talent plus genius equals a uh, flawed character and that's often the case mm. in fairness in many sports it is, Nasri but, is waving at you <laughs> I, I think I used the word genius there, Elliot. So don't don't put that name in there when well, I'm talking look, about. He gave us one of the genius moments of my life, the Drip Doctor's Twitter night. So I, that's still oh one of my, my favorite. Yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. Okay, <laughs> take it back. But look, I think he is a very. Um, I, how do you say it without sounding sounding patronizing that he's a very well brought up young man? You know, um, in the sense that he's. He's well-mannered. I think somebody was saying last night, I saw on Twitter, that when he came off last night, he he said thank you to Gareth Southgate when he was coming off the pitch, you know? And most players, or a lot of players, would be like throwing a huff or something like that. Mm -hmm. I just think he's a very um, decent, respectful young man who who I think is always going to be like that. He's got a, a precocious talent. He's way ahead of where he probably should be in terms of his development as a player, um, just something I was talking about on on the podcast today, which will which will be out uh, tomorrow at some point uh, Friday. Just the, the fact that he has always seemed to be able to skip an age level. Mm. He's like a little maths genius, you know, the twelve year old yeah. who'd get called up to Harvard or Doogie whatever. Hauser. Yeah, we, we had a show <laughs> called Doogie Hauser. He's a doctor at fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Doogie Hauser. Yeah, so he's like footballing Doogie Hauser. That's what he is, and uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, you don't have to be an asshole to be really good. Um, and I think that is something that can connect with people as well. You know, there's a lot going on in the world that isn't great. And there's a lot going on in football that isn't great. So to be reminded that, you know, you can embody all the things that we like to think are important in, in a way a person is and behaves and, and, and views the world and also be really brilliant at football like Bukayo Saka is, uh, I think that's something that we can all kind of get on board with, no? Oh, yeah. I mean, the funny thing is you think about the battle for the right side attacking forward position at Arsenal between Pepe and mm -hmm. Saka, and you will not see a more 
quiet battle in history because you have two people who from a character standpoint are extreme introverts from the outside looking in, maybe not introverts, but at least quiet, uh, well-mannered guys. I do wonder, I mean, I think this can cut one of two ways. Having a really good, exciting summer tournament where you go to the final for a young player can build character, bring you back with immense confidence and and get Mm. your season off to a bang. But it can also mean that you don't get a full preseason, you're a little bit tired, and the other players start a bit ahead of you. And so I'm sort of wondering, looking ahead, we have this interesting situation developing at Arsenal where Saka is obviously the star of the future. Certainly looks like it right now. Hard to see how that wouldn't be the case. But he also has a very expensively acquired, very talented partner on the right-hand side in Pepe, uh, an academy kid in Smith Rowe who sometimes plays on the flank, right? Um you know, maybe another player being acquired there. And then another young Tyro in Martinelli, who's going to get a full preseason that Saka won't. So how do you see this cutting? Because by the time he comes back and gets a bit of a rest and is ready to start playing, those mm. other guys, the Pepe's, the Smith Rose, the Martinelli's of the world will have been playing preseason, maybe have even started Premier League games that Saka might've been held out of. So mm. does it springboard him to a much better season or does it maybe potentially mean that he gets off to a slower start in your view? Well, look, I think he is going to get off to a slower start. What I would say is that I think Saka is already a first name on the team sheet player for Arsenal. When he's fit, he plays. Now, where exactly he plays, that's the million-dollar question for me. And that's something I'm really interested to see next season. Because you say, uh, you know, he's competing with Pepe on the right. And he may well be. But it strikes me that if we're going to try and harness what Pepe did towards the end of the season you know, leaving him out for Saka while playing maybe somebody not quite as good on the left doesn't make a lot of sense if Saka can also play on the left. I, I'm I'm fascinated to see what the plan is for him and where he might end up. Um, you know, we've seen him play left back, left wing back, left side of uh, the front three, right side of the front three. Occasionally, we've seen him play as a sort of number 10. We reckon, and I think it's quite uh, obvious that he could uh, play as an eight in a four three three. So where he ends up, I think is going to be really, really interesting. Uh, and I wouldn't want to pigeonhole him. What I would say, though, is that Arsenal have to think about Bakayo Saka's long, medium to long-term future when we start this season. Because he's been off the back of a huge season. You're a guy who counts the minutes that players play, and you know that only mm-hmm. Granit Xhaka played more outfield minutes than Bakayo Saka last season. He's now gone into an international tournament. He's been training. He's been playing. This kid is going to need a rest, and that's going to hurt us because, um, you know, he's one of our best players, and that's not something that you can do without when you're going to play a newly promoted Brentford and you're playing Chelsea and you're playing Man City. But the reality, I think, is that if we're going to manage him properly, we are going to have to give him – a break, give him some holidays, let him come back. I don't think it's like the old days where if you don't get preseason, you're absolutely ruined. You know, he's not going to go on his holidays and eat all the fish and chips and the burgers and come back two stone overweight. You know, mm. that's not what preseason is anymore. Mm. It might be what you or I would do, but uh, finally, true I don't just do that in preseason. I can do that all season long. Trust me. I can yeah, stay yeah. in that shape year round. Here's your sister. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's. <laughs> It is a case, I think, that we're going to have to be careful with him because we don't want... I mean, what is the only thing that can stop Bakayo Saka? And that's injury. And we don't want to be stupid or careless. As much as we might need him in some of those games, we're probably going to have to sit there and, you know, 
bite our bite our hands, you know, and think well, we'd love to have Saka for this game, but the best thing for our season might be, you know, to 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 leave him out. So I think that is something that Mikel Arteta is going to have to reckon with at the start of the season. England have gone all the way to the final, so Saka is going to need a a break. I don't think it's a case that. You know, whatever happens, you know, I hope whoever does play, whether it's Martinelli, although he's going to the Olympics, Smith Rowe, Pepe, you know, did whoever. Did he get picked for the Olympics? For some reason, I thought I saw that he, he actually didn't wind up making the team. Did he make it? He did at first, and then he's been called up again. So he's going to be. Are we letting if, him go? Yep. And if Brazil go all the way, then the final is on August the 7th, and our first game is on the the 13th of August. So that could be his preseason, uh, but maybe if he's coming back from Tokyo. He's going to have to isolate for a couple of weeks or quarantine or something. I don't. I don't quite know. But look, I don't think there's any danger of of Saka losing his place um, because others are going to play in the first two or three games of the season. That's that's where I think when when he comes back, someone else makes way simply because he's so good. Yeah, it's a shame for Martinelli because I he is a player who I now mm. think moves into more of that. How do we find a way to develop this extraordinary young talent in light of the players we have in positions that he wants to play? And I think yeah. that is going to be a real challenge for Arteta this season with no Europa League because I realize there are people that that maybe aren't as high on Martinelli as I am. I I think it's in there, and I think it's our job to unlock it. And I certainly think if you say, how could Arsenal be exceptional in the coming seasons? Well, one nice shortcut would be for Saka, Martinelli, and Smith Rowe to all be stars. Right. Mm. And and we have to find yeah. a way to, to get that to happen. So let me ask you, I mean, if you had to look at this group, <clears throat> let's say we do buy someone like an Awar and we wind mm. up with an Awar, Smith Rowe, Pepe, Saka, Martinelli. Mm. How do you see that hierarchy in terms of so-and-so might get 25 starts? So-and-so. I mean, you don't have to list each one, but... Do you have sort of, let's say we want to play the 4-2-3-1. Now, it might be a 4-3-3, which mm. changes that a little bit. Let's say it's a 4-2-3-1, and Aubameyang's up front. How do you see the hierarchy of that group? Because you really have, I would say in that scenario, two for each position sort of competing. It's a great question. I mean, I don't know at this point because, you know, it's hard to know what we're going to do in the transfer market. I'm beginning to get a little bit antsy, but of course, you know, there is still time. There's a, a month to the new season and there's, you know, August 31st is the transfer window. Players are in <clears throat> training. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But started. I, I think I would, I don't want to sort of, it's difficult to deal in hypotheticals like this because you're assuming that. Um, in every game, we're going to play the same eleven. I don't. I don't think that's the case. I know it's a little more difficult this season because we're not going to have Europe, and consistency of selection is going to be something that I think Arteta is going to have to lean into, assuming he can find something that works. Right. Um, in terms of a hierarchy, I don't well, know. Other than Willian, who's at the top, of course. Well, from down from there. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Look, if we sign an hour and uh, Smith Rowe is there as well, I mean, I think Smith Rowe can play a lot from the left. I think some of this will depend on what happens with Lacazette. Mm -hmm. So if it's a case that Lacazette goes, do we buy a striker or do we use Martinelli as our, our you know, Aubameyang alternative slash partner? You know, I that kind of that, yeah. You know, and I wouldn't be averse to that either. And then you have Pepe, um, Smith Rowe, Saka, and Awar, or whoever the signing might be, you know, to to back them up, and that's like four players for three positions. So 
it's relatively easy to to see how everyone would get game time in that scenario. Mm. I mean, do do you think then as a result, this could be a season given there's no Europe where someone who we might in other seasons have kept at the club has to go out on loan. I, I look at Balogun and I think you want him playing 30, mm. 30 games a season, at least 40 games a season. And um, I just, I don't see how he gets anything resembling regular time for Arsenal this season. So is, yeah. is he someone who might have to go out on loan versus other seasons where he might've stayed? I think so. Like if we were playing Europa League and we had a similar kind of group like last season, you know, of course you keep Balogun and you play him in those games. Um, we don't have that. We don't have the luxury of that. And there's a lot of pressure this season on uh, results. You know, we've got to be we've got to be performing this season. We've got we've got to make sure that we're we're in the European conversation at the very very least. Um, so I'm. Uh, it's another situation that I'm quite interested in because. You know, he was basically going as far as everybody who was in the know was saying, look, this guy's going to go. He's got all these offers. It doesn't look like he's going to stay. In fact, it looks more than likely he's going to leave the club. And they've talked him into staying. And I want to know how. <laughs> I, I want to know, like, how do you sell it to a kid like that who who had options. He could have gone to Germany. He could have gone to a number of European clubs. And I'm sure he could have gone to a, no, a number of English clubs who, you know, Brentford probably would have taken him because uh, I think they did make a bid. Sheffield United made a bid for him as well last, se- uh, last season. So what have they said to Balogun about either his pathway or his development schedule? You know what I mean? They've, they've, there must be something there that's made him go, okay, I'll stay. Maybe well, there's some financial incentive. But again, I agree with you. It's really hard to see how, unless he is the guy who's going to back up Obama Yang if Lacazette goes, it's very hard to see how he gets game time given his limited experience uh, of top flight football. I mean, maybe the selling point was Lacazette's going to go. You're going to go out on loan. Mm-hmm. Obama Yang's in his mid-30s and you know was mm-hmm. obviously very savvy re-signing that we did. The less said, the better. And you're the guy that we see being the heir apparent to those two. And mm. I mean, you know, there's one thing when I was 20, I went and lived in Paris for a little bit and I loved it, but I was homesick. And I think we forget sometimes these are kids, kids who may find going to Germany as a teenager mm-hmm. away from everything they know, scary. And if the club you grew up in that is literally your home and everything you've known as a footballer says, we'll pay you a really nice wage to be patient and become the guy down the road. You may feel that that's, more comfortable for you. And I understand that we sometimes look down at kids who won't get out of their comfort zone. I know there was an era in England where you criticized some kids who weren't willing to go overseas and try their talents there where they had more opportunity, but easier said than done. When you were 18, did you want to go, you know, live in a foreign country? It's not so easy, you know? Yeah. If I was a brilliant footballer, maybe, but like, I think, I think the other, the flip side of that is that, you know, it's no longer, there are, there are players who, um, have demonstrated a clear pathway to serious career progression by doing that. Jaden Sancho? Jaden Sancho, like perfect example. You know, the, here's a guy who wasn't getting picked for Man City. He said, no, I'm not having it. I'm going. I'm going to Dortmund. He's developed. He's played regularly. He's sensational. He's coming back, and he's he's going to join Manchester United. He's got everything he wants in terms of Premier League football, in terms of his career, his salary, his all of it, his profile. He's in the England squad. I know he hasn't played a great deal, but, you know, I think there's there are examples there for 
for young players that if they believe in themselves, it's not a case that you're, okay, I'm going to go to Germany and then all of a sudden I'm scratching around in the Cypriot second division or something like that, you know. So I do think there is an attractiveness there. There must have been some conversation with Balogun about, if not guaranteed playing time, a definite development plan that would enable him to get some playing time in the future. And I think your scenario where if you say, look, even if Lacazette stays another year, he leaves at the end of his contract, Aubameyang is going to be 33 at that point. You know, we are going to need a striker, go on loan, score the goals, and maybe you come back and you can stake a claim for that place alongside someone else because it's not unreasonable to think that maybe next season we don't have either Aubameyang or Lacazette. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know I'm, I'm out of time. I'm going to ask you three, one, one word answer quick hitters. Cause I, I'm going to maximize every last second. One is, um, uh, Smith Rowe sailed to Villa. Do you have any worry at all? No. Yeah, me too. No, um, other than, other than simply because like, if they do, they have demonstrated a, a fatal lack of understanding and ambition. It doesn't make about any sense. Football yeah. club. So it just, it's simply, cannot happen you're going to spend twice that much to replace him with someone who might not even be as good and is in your academy yeah. and more wages doesn't make sense uh yeah. joe willick do you think he'll be sold or kept kept last one reese nelson does he exist can you prove it yes because i've seen him half naked on instagram and if that is not Leave it there. Uh, Andrew's on <laughs> Twitter. <doesn't>... <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to say, but no, that's good. I, I yeah, I feel for Reese Nelson, but it looks like he's his arsenal. I think he'll go. I yeah, think he'll. And there's not much of a path to the positions he'd want to play anyway. Uh, Andrew's on Twitter. Arsenal. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Thanks as always, and uh, thanks to all the uh, Arsenal Vision crew. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And. Uh, uh, Welcome to steal any of them other than myself anytime. Uh, We are going to take a break to straighten your teeth. And when we come back, unfortunately, Tim and Paul will be here. But uh, it should be fun. So stay with us. There's a specialist for just about everything, right? When my car breaks down, I go to a mechanic. When there's a problem with my shower, I call a plumber when I shower. So when you want to get your uneven, crooked teeth fixed, you see an orthodontist. They're the specialists. And that's what sets Candid, the invisible, comfortable, and removable aligners above the rest. While poorly reviewed or insanely priced clear aligner companies use general dentists, Candid only works with orthodontists. And with Candid, the same orthodontist who created your plan is with you from start to finish, so you never have to wonder how you're doing. Your treatment is prescribed and closely monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist who's an expert in tooth movement. You can book an appointment at a Candid studio near you or do everything from the comfort and convenience of your own home. The average Candid treatment is just six months. You'll start seeing results way before that, and it costs thousands less than traditional braces. And with your aligner treatment, you'll even get Candid's teeth whitening free. Candid can help you get the straighter, brighter smile you've always wanted. Right now, you can save $75 on your Candid starter kit when you get started from home. Go to CandidCo.com slash vision and use code vision. That's CandidCo.com slash vision, code vision. CandidCo.com slash vision, code vision. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save. All right, we're back, and now we have the main group, uh, Sons uh, Clive, who is not fit enough to start, but we do have Tim, and you can find him on Twitter, at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter, Pause My Pants. Hello, Paul. Woohoo! So, Tim, who is our day out correspondent, uh, back when <laughs> days out were a thing, well, they're a thing again, and he had one, and Clive had one. He's not fit enough to start, but 
you know, his his playing days were a few years ago now. Tim, even though there's been a year <laughs> pandemic, you're you're still in shape for the for the day out, and it seems like you're recovering okay. So, uh, congratulations, obviously, Thank are you. in order. We can maybe touch on a little of the controversy surrounding what happened there, and and my take on how maybe overblown it is. But first, let's just hear about it. You went to Wembley. You you went to the game. Mm. What was the buildup like? The match like? And then. Based on your social media, the trying to get home part wasn't so fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, London, the city that very much sleeps. As you can probably tell from my voice, which is still recovering, um, it, it was absolutely fantastic. And it wasn't just fantastic because, you know, England won a big game at Wembley, uh, which, you know, a game that big literally hasn't happened in my lifetime. But it was more the kind of, and, and this is always true anyway, that, that it's the communal experience that makes it. But the communal experience on the back of 18 months where communal experiences haven't existed. Mm. And, and you know, for many people still don't exist and won't exist for a while. Um, you know, th- this isn't post-pandemic by any means. And there are lots of people who are, who are still vulnerable. Um, and, they're, you know, um, the, the the virus hasn't gone anywhere. So I, th- I think it's important to put it in that context. However, there were 60,000 people at Wembley. That's that's the biggest, I think I'm right in saying the biggest sporting event in terms of, well, definitely in terms of the size of the actual event. I mean, there were 28 million, I think, that watched it on TV in England as well. Um, but certainly the biggest um, kind of number of spectators that have gathered uh, for any event, I think, uh, since the start of the pandemic and and that in itself was just absolutely enormous i i got to wembley about four o'clock and me and a couple of friends just sat on wembley way uh with some beers and that even that part of the day was just great because it was like wow when was the last time we were around this many people and you know obviously uh, there was a you know hashtag carnival atmosphere and and everything like that and um a severe lack of outdoor toilets as well um but, i mean I, I don't want to be crass here but that's what the underwear is for right it's very absorbent so that's fine <laughs> well um let's just say the local uh, plant life was well watered <laughs> Um, during the few hours that that we were there um and and then you know inside the stadium and so uh you, you feel maybe a little bit more confident anyway just because like everyone has to produce a negative test within 48 hours of entering the stadium and things like that but it's it's amazing how quickly you pick up the cues of being in a mass like a throng of people again and like talking to people um because I, I i didn't go on my own uh, like I didn't travel there on my own, but I sat on my own and just being in the concourse before and having a beer and just talking to people and talking to strangers again in a way that I haven't been able to really for, for 18 months or so. And then hugging people next to you randomly when goals go in and things like that. And then just little cues I've missed, like going to the toilet at half time and everyone cramming in and smoking um and stuff like that and and just you know my throat being hoarse that hasn't happened in such a long time and so you know even leaving aside the actual enormity of the the occasion and how it turned out and everything just just that kind of communality of it and they played sweet caroline at the end and i know some people have a problem with that song but just being in a stadium where well there there are a few thousand danes to be fair so i won't say all sixty thousand were singing um sweet caroline but just like that kind of air punching, singing along, um, 
you know, people just just really enjoying it. And and I I do think that that pandemic context is is hugely important and and has actually really added and enhanced this tournament. I think with the kind of addition of crowds, I think it's made us all realise how much crowds add. And yeah, I, I got a major dose of that last night and I just realised all the things I loved about being in a crowd that I'd forgotten. Yeah, <clears throat> I watching it at home, obviously, it's better with a crowd. I'm curious about something. I, you know, obviously, I'm invested in it because I'm sort of rooting for England and I also kind of felt bad for Denmark. Like there was a tension there from mm-hmm. a narrative standpoint, but I was rooting for England, for you, for Clive, for, you know, all the friends I have who who support England, Tim Clark and, and Phil Costa, obviously, who are doing the Euro Daily with. But like... Y- is it almost less nerve-wracking being at the ground than sitting alone at home watching on TV yep. because the energy, the sort of febrile energy of the crowd gives you a way to shed some of that nervousness in a way that you mm-hmm. can't just sitting at home, like, biting your fingernails? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, it It's weird. I think it, it kind of giveth and taketh away at the same time because you're right. You can kind of scream and shout and leap around with people and mm-hmm. things like that. But at the same time, so I think in like the extreme moments, it really is. But I tell you, when it really hit me is when, um, you know, when the penalty was given and that thing happened that I, I find always happens when penalties are given. People start celebrating and that makes me extra nervous. Like, no, don't celebrate. Like, you know, for me, penalty spot. Yep. Quick, quick fist pump and then mm. refocus. But like loads of people in crowds just go mad. And that makes me even more nervous. And the run up for the penalty, I think that made me feel more nervous because I could feel everyone's nervous energy. But at the same time, you're right, you can expel it far easier. Because if I'd have been sat here watching at home, either slash on my own or with my wife who's Brazilian and therefore isn't really invested, Mm. then I wouldn't have celebrated nearly as much. Whereas when it actually went in or the penalty rebound anyway, you know, there was that big like, you know, I had like foolishly I bought sunglasses with me because I needed them earlier in the day. And obviously they went south. um, somewhere and (laughs) and you're just like kind of leaping around and and someone was next to me who was like slightly annoying um to be honest but like once the goal went in it didn't matter and you start like hugging everyone and and you know which which might probably still be (laughs) advised but you know it it just it just felt like one of those nights like it's uh i i'm not look i'm a complete glory hunter when it comes to england i think international (laughs) tournaments International tournaments are like Christmas, basically, like everyone enjoys Christmas and you can be like a bit cynical about it if you want. And I certainly used to be. But then you just think, do you know what? People enjoy this. Let them enjoy it. Like, I, you know, I, I don't see loads of like Christians going around going, oh, I don't see you in church every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, it's it's you know, it's holiday it, for everyone, it, mate. It's exactly. It is what it is. But it's like, kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, all you have to do is turn on the TV right now and see the people who have clearly never watched a football match in their life talking about the England team like yeah, they yeah. like they host their own podcast, for example. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Tim, can and, I add? That's fine. That's fine. Can I? Can I add, as a, a, Dub, a Catholic uh, from Dublin, that back in the day, you most cer- certainly did have people saying, I haven't seen such and such a church this week. <laughs> yeah, That's true. 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 <laughs> um, well, last thing, Tim, I mean, um, it, it is the unfortunate reality of social media that the worst things get amplified. And so whenever England succeed in a tournament or in a tournament, I feel like England, even more than other countries, are a victim of social media passing around videos of men behaving badly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that men don't behave badly and that England fans haven't behaved badly, but 
you know, as usual, in the wake of this, there's some videos that are a little cringy. Having been there and been in the crowd and made your way home from the game, do you find that that is social media doing its typical thing of amplifying the limited amount of, of bad behavior? I mean, is it... Like for you, do you see mostly good people behaving well, celebrating the right way, enjoying the occasion, mostly handling their liquor okay? Or or do you see it being unfortunately um, stained a little bit by behavior that you'd rather not be witness to? Yeah, and, and look, I'm not a veteran of England games by any means. My my impression, like so last night, I saw very, very little of that. There was, just, there was just yeah. one point where like we were waiting for the tube and the like the no surrender chant went up and it was you know it was a load of guys who like probably weren't even born when like the, the troubles were happening and mm-hmm. it's like i bet you don't even know what ira stands for mm-hmm. um but you know they, they, of course was, like, they do a that's where they put their money that. to avoid tax liability sorry oh, that's, that's a roth ira <laughs> never mind sorry <laughs> and, uh, it is so like i i do think there's probably a difference between like last night which would have had a lot more fans like you know, probably me who are there for Christmas, as mm-hmm. it were. Um, whereas I probably get the impression that if you go to like Slovenia for a qualifier and there's a smaller, more hardcore band, like you can't deny that that element exists in within the England fan base. You just you just can't. It is there. The question is, to what extent is it there? To what extent is it a minority, majority, small minority, large minority, whatever? And I, I'm I'm not an expert on that because uh, I don't go to enough England games. But last night like overwhelmingly just not like that at all and actually opposite me there was um you know there were some danish fans on our train and there was like a young england fan kind of having a chat with this danish guy kind of looked in his late 40s early 50s and the england fan you know he said he was 22 and um and it was just that because you know like everyone's a bit euphoric and uh, like when I was queuing for the tube, there was a Danish couple next to me and all the England fans kept coming over to them and shaking hands with them and stuff. And and I could observe that they were not like annoyed by it. But, you know, like as much as you're euphoric and because you're in such a good mood, you're just like, oh, and you really just want to go and shake their hands and say, you know, commiserations and all of that. But at the same time, they're the opposite. They're They're really pissed off. And therefore, like, I'm sure they completely appreciate the gesture and the context of it and everything. But at the same time, they're probably a bit like, I, I don't really want to talk to anyone at the fair, moment. Yeah, I'm already enough. like, I'm already surrounded by the supporters of the team who's won. And really, I kind of just want to slink off home and forget about it. But, there, you know, there, there was lots of like, certainly around me um, and everything I saw was like, overwhelmingly positive and and like the other thing i'd say that really helped make the atmosphere there was actually quite a strong danish contingent they had a whole end and um you know the danes and english fans just mixed wonderfully but you need that opposition support as well and uh, and that's one of the things I know I'm going to say this because I'm biased and I live in the city and it meant I could go to the game easily but that is one of the uh, benefits of london hosting um, you know, semi-finals and finals because there's such a diaspora here. There will be loads of Italians in the stadium on mm. Sunday, and that will be great because there are loads of Italians in London. It's it's a bit like when they hold the Copper America in the US. I think that makes a hell of a lot of sense because of the South American diaspora there, mm-hmm. and uh, and and that really helped make it as well because we had like a nice engaged Denmark enders, and 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 it was just great. Yeah, that is great, and I mean, it is sort of the interesting tension in some ways of the people who say, oh, I'm sick of plastic fans and tourists and I long for the old days. And then there's that tension of like, well, 
the old days of doing jingoistic or racist chants and vandalizing property and punching each other in the face like that old days or you know and I get it like you want people that really genuinely support the team but also ideally you want people that genuinely support the team in a good mannered way and make it a great day out for everyone seems like that's what you're saying it was and I I think it is unfortunate on social media you can have a video of a girl getting Mason Mount's shirt and losing her mind with joy that gets like 3,000 likes and you can have a larger gentleman with his shirt off behaving badly that gets 40,000 shares with a bunch of people tut-tutting and so that's just the way social media works but you know just hearing you talk about that experience of being in the crowd and getting a a hoarse voice and you know a sore throat and and sharing a hug and I am a hugger so you know Paul be prepared when we get to Vegas my my man because like there's many hugs will be shared and given in and that's fine yeah no that's why I'm so excited about this event too because like I miss that. I need that. I want to be surrounded by crowds of people who just want to celebrate Arsenal and watch the game and punch the air and, you know, and especially not having access to the Emirates and being able to go over there right now to be able to do that for a Chelsea game that weekend there. Like, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to share drinks and hugs and chants and cheers and, and watch the games together and have I'm that experience. I'm going to be there for you. It. Do not worry about it. I'm, oh. I'm very handsy. Yeah. Well, we're booked. Your room's booked. My room's booked. Flights are booked. Ooh, we're booked. Same room. Uh, I mean, they have a connecting door so we can act like we're not sharing the room, you know, plausible deniability. But uh, so, look, let's let's shift slightly from the, the occasion of the day to, to two things that I think we really can talk about with that game. And then we'll shift into some transfer rumors for the hashtag clicks. Um, one of them is just the controversy of the penalty award. And I don't want to spend a, a ton of time on this, but like the the, the level of outrage about it is interesting. And I wonder if it would be the same if it wasn't for England in particular, if it hadn't happened at Wembley, um, I understand people that think it wasn't a penalty. I am more of the opinion that it probably isn't one. But if you've ever listened to this podcast before, uh, you will know that I'm the kind of person who, when Arsenal lose and there's a bad refereeing decision in the game, I tend to be the guy who says, you still have to go win the game. You have to do enough to deserve to win. And we always talk about variance, Paul, in, in football. It is a low-scoring sport. And so if you play in a way where the variants can come back to bite you, that is dangerous. And I think, you know, Denmark in the second half, particularly where they looked a little fatigued and they sat back, England were in the penalty box, I think 57 penalty box touches or something. When you touch the ball 57 times in the opposition penalty box, you increase the risk that a soft penalty be awarded, that something will go against you, a random handball, and that's the variance of football. So while I fully, fully feel for Denmark, a story that was wonderful and a, and a penalty award that is harsh, A, it didn't lose them the game. England were still very much in it. Denmark looked out on their feet, and it's possible they would have won in extra time or in penalties anyway. But two, you know, I mean, credit to England. I think they had, without the penalty, like three expected goals or something, 57 penalty box touches at some point. You know, you kind of have to hold your hands up and say it's a harsh way for it to happen, but it's probably a fair outcome. Is that is that how you see it as well, or do you feel more of the injustice? Uh, I don't really feel the injustice. If it had been... One moment in the game where, you know, it was the one time England got into their box. <clears throat> but I'm with you. You get into the box that often with Sterling traveling at speed. Uh, like the first view I had of it live, I thought, oh, that's a penalty. Um, now, you can look at it from multiple angles and there's a spectrum of angles depending on which one you look at it. And yes, they do a VAR review. There's contact. Uh, there's double contact in the end. He was looking for it, but then the best attackers look for a penalty. He was beginning to go down, but then the best attackers, that's what they do to you. They terrorize defenses in the box. We may wish this game 
was black and white and adjudicated in a way in which it was always fair, always equal, but it's not. Um, it never was. It never will be. I mean, even looking at it with the different angles and nationalities and prejudices aside, <clears throat> you might have most people saying, well, maybe technically at the end of it, it's not a penalty. But you still have plenty of people saying, no, I still think it is a penalty or, you know, a, a shades of it. So at the end of the day, you come down to a decision on the day and Sterling was excellent in that movement into the box. I think the attacker has the prerogative, the advantage to cause the situation in general, whether it's, you know, I, I hate it and it upsets me. It doesn't mean I don't kind of accept that somebody like a cane getting into your penalty box time and time again, like the ones where there's no contact, the ones where it's totally fabricated, that's another matter. But if there's a a contact incoming and the guy makes the most of it, uh, I mean, that's that's the game. That's what a, an attacker does. He brings you onto him. He puts you in a dangerous situation where you ex- expose yourself um, and he I takes don't need to be in a dangerous of, situation to expose myself, but go ahead, sir. Oh, always with the smut, Elliot. Um, <laughs> roll, roll, roll reversal Thursday. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's what you do. Like, if the guy wasn't any good, they would have backed off him, right? If the guy didn't have them on toast, they would have been back a foot from him. They would have guided him up. But he's just, like, he terrifies defense what was the game? Was and, it Wolves where, where we're dominating and David Luiz gets the really, really soft penalty and red card? Yep. Wolves, right? Right at the end yep. of the first half. That's yep. an example of where you say, it feels a little harsh and it cost us the game. Now, ironically, yep. it didn't. It was the second sending off that cost us the game. But my yep. point is, that's when we could say, that refereeing decision totally changes what the outcome looked like it was heading to be. And I just don't feel that way with this, you know? Yeah, it's like you just look at the amount of possession, amount of threat into and around the box. It was kind of, it was one of these that felt like it was coming. Now, it might not have come, but like he did it to them. It's not like around, it wasn't, he wasn't him, one of these where he's like at the corner of the box, heading in the wrong direction, looking to pass off to the touchline. He was coming straight at them and they had to throw players in his way, which he had to slalom through and he decided not to slalom through them. And he went down and there was contact and that's the way the game is. And you mightn't love it, but the best, that's what the best players do. Yeah. Refereeing. They do it to you. Yeah. You're absolutely, look, refereeing decisions are the quintessential example of survivorship bias because you remember the bad calls. You don't remember the non calls that went for you or the calls that went for you. So like, I don't think it's totally clear that it should have been a free kick for the free kick that they score. Denmark scores to take the lead. I don't, there was one where Kane pokes the ball sort of past the defender at the top of the box and the defender clips his leg. Now the defender's in front of him. So I think that's the the referee opts not to make the call there. I wonder if this was half a penalty plus half a penalty equals a whole penalty. If there was some of that, some of that going on. But I mean, it's just the point that I feel for Denmark. Of course I do. What a wonderful story it was. And not just a story. They were an excellent team that played well. I think they were outplayed in this game, and I think the the outcome seems fair, and I think the final is going to be incredible. And, and with that having been said, I think we can start to shift it to a more Arsenal focus. Um, you know, we've talked about it a, a little bit already, uh, but l- let's get your take on it, Tim. I mean, when Bakayo Saka got picked for the team, 
I was disappointed because I thought now he won't get a summer off and it's not like he's going to play anyway. I mean, Mount, mm. Grealish, Foden, Sancho, Sterling, DCL, Kane, you know, like he, he you know, Rashford, he's not going to get on. So just give him the summer off. And instead he's become the memeable, lovable star boy <laughs> of the tournament in some ways. And that's probably more in the Arsenal circles than anywhere else. But I mean, he, he has played an important role in the latter stages of this tournament. He is instrumental in the equalizer, even if he doesn't get it exactly right. And I'll have a word on that in a minute. I mean, it really is, um, I think, potentially a boon for Arsenal because what he's lacking in rest, I think the confidence of playing under such high stakes and having so much responsibility put on him can only accelerate his development. How much have you enjoyed it? And how how much do you think it can come to benefit Arsenal? Yeah, I've, I've hugely enjoyed it. It was possibly, well, one of my favorite moments of last night was when he went off and got a big standing ovation. And it was, you know, it's just like, yeah, everyone sees the player that we've seen now. And I think the reason he's kind of muscled his way into that team, I, I'm with you, Elliot. I, I kind of thought he might not even play a minute Mm-hmm. Um, in this tournament, I, you know, he might get on for a couple of minutes at the end of a game. Um, but the reason I think he's muscled his way into the team is because he provides that balance. Because, um, particularly against the kind of the stronger opposition like Denmark are, there's that kind of because sometimes Southgate can go to a back three and sometimes he he goes to four two three one. But when you play Saka, you can kind of it's kind of like um not a halfway house, but you know what I mean. It's like well. If I play Saka, I can play four at the back because the way he plays is is almost wing-back-ish. Can I stop and, you for um, a second, though, to say something that's yeah, very sure. out of character for me? People know I'm not a, I'm not totally off the fence on Arteta yet. I'm, I'm not really sure. I've, I've had my big doubts. But like, I think there are two credits to Arteta here. One, just moving Saka from left to right because if he had stayed as a mm-hmm. left winger, he doesn't play in this tournament at all. Moves him to the right where he thrives and, and becomes important for England. But also... Is it maybe a testament to the fact that Arteta demands that his players understand their positional responsibilities, know where they need to be on the pitch, off the ball, on the ball, in the defensive phase, in the attacking phase, that then leads him to become an asset for Southgate, who can trust putting him out there, getting the attacking aspects of the game that he needs from him, but knowing he'll be in the positions he needs to in the other in the other phases of play. Yeah, definitely. And you see that with the equaliser, you know, he knows to make the run in behind mm-hmm. when when Kane's there. And, and that's the thing, because I'm sure that mainly the reason he's being played is because of his ability to drive um, with the ball, which we see time and again, he's just so good on the half turn and holding people off and fending them off and just getting the ball down the pitch. And it's almost like, and, and you know, he's being picked ahead of Grealish to do that. Um, and that's because he, he does his his business going the other way but um so i like i i think mainly the the kind of idea is kane and sterling are basically a strike partnership they're basically a front two for england so you need that link and mason mount provides it a bit but what they've got with saka is mason mount kind of provides it from the left that ability to drive and to carry albeit he does it a little bit more off the ball but with Saka, you know, England are, are quite a counter-attacking team. So, you know, Saka picking the ball up on the halfway line with his back to the fullback and driving inside, you know, he did that time and time and time again. And I, and I think Southgate realises what a valuable weapon that is for a counter-attacking team. But but for the goal as well, he knows to make the run. Like, that's the kind of run that Sancho would make. That's the kind of run that, you know, Sterling um, might make as well. And, uh, and, you know, getting that cut back again, which is a, a, a favourite kind of England goal, 
And that bodes really well for Arsenal as well, because I'm certain that's the type of goal that um, Arteta wants Arsenal to score. And I'm sure Arteta looked at that equaliser last night um, and he kind of thought, there's my boys. That's uh, that's Saka making the run in behind, squaring for a tap in for Sterling. Um, albeit I know it was an own goal in the end, but you know Arteta must have been looking at that and thinking, yeah, that's that's the ghost of my coaching past and the ghost of my coaching future mm. um, meeting there. And and it's it it, it is just I'm so so happy for him because he's such a good player, but like such a nice character as well. And and I think you always get. I mean, nowadays in the social media age, you call it memeable, as you referenced. And we got that a little bit in the last World Cup with Harry Maguire, you know, the meme of of him talking to his, um, I don't know if it's wife or girlfriend, and that became a really popular meme. And, and now it's, it's kind of Saka who's going to get that off the back of this tournament. And I would anticipate that when Arsenal play, when he plays his first game of the season, he'll get a round of applause off, off the, the, the opposition fans as well. A young up-and-coming academy player for Arsenal who's starring for England riding an inflatable unicorn through the sky is, <laughs> it's going to get memed. And oh, by the way, no apologies. Brandon McKenna took his stylus, went to his iPad, hand-drew a rendering of it, threw it on a psychedelic background and said, we're putting this on mugs, shirts, and hoodies. And I said, phone case, I said, put it everywhere. Put on everything because I want one of all of them. So if you want that, you can go to arsenalvisionpodcast.com and you'll see them right on the homepage there. You can click shop, but they are awesome. Brandon designed them all by hand. So credit to him at Arsenal Illustrator. Yep. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the, um, I I know quite a lot of people have got this, their profile on Twitter at the moment, but someone's like mocked it up over the three three lines. lines. Yeah, of course. It's, yeah. I mean, (laughs) there's so many ways you can do it. And I mean, it is. It's a must-have because, I mean, he's a player who's going to be at Arsenal for a long time. He's so wholesome. I think that's the thing, too. I never felt this way about Jack Wilshere. I loved Jack Wilshere, but he was a bastard. But he was our bastard. But I loved him. Never felt this way about Cesc Fabregas. Loved Cesc Fabregas, but he was a he was a bastard. He was a shit-talking, pizza-throwing bastard. But, but Kyle Sack is like, you. he's like your child. Like he's he's lovable and and cuddly and there's just something so sweet about him. He is an assassin, a, a stone faced killer on the pitch. But often he's just there's this sweetness, and so it it makes you just I don't know him on an inflatable unicorn. Like I mean that that is that is really it. We described it by the way on the website as um a mythical being of immense power and also an inflatable unicorn. So mm. uh, I, I had a yeah. I had a tattooed on my winky. Yeah, good. and man man does that unicorn inflate. Oh. Super. So now, now opposite day is over. Now we've we've returned the, the proper alignment on the podcast. I have um, retaken my crown. Thank you. Yep. Good. Let, let's talk about that. And by the way, there was the internet loves discourse. So one of the discourse things from the people who are salty because it's not Sancho starting or it's not Foden starting was, well, Saka's first touch isn't good and the pass is late and he gets lucky. It's an own goal. And it's like that's football. Like, like no one gets it perfect all the time. Oh, by the way, Kane missed his penalty. Right, he get, he gets lucky and he gets a rebound. Sterling missed from point blank range two minutes before that Saka, uh, quote unquote, assist. So like, even the best players screw up. It's his runs in behind, and this is what I want to focus on, Paul. One thing that Arsenal needs is more goals, and one thing Arsenal needs to be better at is breaking down low blocks. What makes Saka really special to me off the ball, on the ball, I don't think one defender can stop him, and I think that is a really unique and important trait because when you have to bring a second defender over. Everything changes for the other attackers. But the other thing is his runs in behind, even against low blocks, even when there isn't as much space. Now, I realize that one, it's not as deep, but there were other runs he made where he got in behind, even against low blocks. Is is that a superpower of his that we 
underrate the ability Mm -hmm. to find space in behind even low blocks and timing the the runs excellently because it's it's sort of what made Aubameyang a superstar. And I think Saka has a little of that. Yeah. He's so, so smart. And particularly on that run. I I mean, I don't know what the criticism of what he did on that run was. Uh, Because uh, if you freeze frame it, when the ball comes to him, Sterling is wide open to have it slid across the box. Because as you know, we can play football with frozen frame moments in time as opposed to running at full speed in a semifinal, trying to control the ball in front of 64,000 people. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. His run is just so good. Perfect angle, perfect timing. Um, What I love about it is that it's basically an in uh, a, a, he knows the moment and Kane's kind of got a no look pass where he just bangs it through the cap, the gap and it's brilliant by Kane but it means him and Saka are totally dialed in. And when you look at the, the front three of Sterling, Kane, and Saka, I mean, what an odd couple or threesome. <laughs> Trio. Yeah, it's, a tr- um, it's a thruple, they call that. Yeah, thruple. <laughs> um, and you look at that and you're like, that probably is the best English three. And and look at the difference in in everything with them in terms of what they bring. The, the kind of this weird role Kane's... Uh, evolving into where he's really a 10 starting at the nine spot, um, doing really clever things, dropping in. And Sack is the guy keying off it. And they're just totally on the same wavelength. Um, I thought in the first 10 minutes as well, when England looked pretty good, they started out, they do this pressing early in the first and second half kind of thing. Um, and Mount and Saka for me were the guys doing it. Uh, Saka is so good in tight spaces. He's like, you give him a narrow corridor on the wing and he'll find a way. Um, so he won't get much space. Um, it, he, between him and Walker, they kept, kept Mela uh, really quiet. Um, that'll be the uh, attacking wing for Italy or has historically been with Insigne there. So that's going to be a very interesting wing. And then you look at the Neville comments today. I don't know if you saw them, but he's basically been uh, pushing for Sancho or Rashford to start ahead of him on the basis that Saka has been great. Okay, Gary. Um, but it's the final and you need somebody who can make an out to in run and connect with Sterling. Uh, cough, I thought Saka and Sterling had a great, great I mean, like <laughs> that was one of the principal things that they were doing well, switching flanks, connecting with each other. I mean, what's he talking about? Like you could not have done a more perfect run connect on the same wavelength. Mm. Um, It's going to be really interesting. I thought it was as well the, you know, Tim talked about the big cheer uh, and appreciation he got when he came off. And then the hug from Southgate, uh, like you can read too much into stuff, but that hug said, listen, I feel really terrible taking you off because you don't deserve to be taken off. But this was the plan. It's time to get Grealish on. To well, he was coming off a up. knock, too, right? I mean, we don't know if yeah. that played a role in it, but, you know, he's the most junior guy out there, and he's suffering a knock, and so, yeah. Man, yeah. yeah, but it was very much the formula. Bring mm-hmm. uh, Grealish on on the left, switch Sterling to the right. It's a different look. The team knows, the team kind of knows the drill. Um, but, like, the hug he got uh, uh, of appreciation from Southgate, I don't know, I think... Like, how do you not play him? Sancho didn't play well enough to start in the final. And Rashford ain't great from the right. And he's just, you know, does he have that same understanding with these guys? I don't know. It's going to be yeah. going to be very interesting. 
This is the hug podcast. We talked a lot about hugging. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling the need for a hug right now. <clears throat> Digital oh, hugs coming. all around. Um, well, con- continuing on. Boy. Oh, yeah, sorry. We all are. It. We all are, frankly. Yeah. Um, so let's use this as a stick to beat Arteta with, Tim, just for a second. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. But yes, no, but, but let's talk about <laughs> Willian. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But let's sort of talk about Arteta. So the interesting thing with Southgate is I don't think Southgate is much of a coach in terms of I don't know that tactically he's all that astute. We know that international coaching and club coaching are very different things. And so I'm loath to make a comparison, but I think if there is a thing that Southgate has gotten completely right from the outside looking in, it's the man management. Keeping a load of stars happy, especially at the attacking end where you've got a lot of people that have a claim to a position, finding ways to make it work. I mean, I don't think that that uh, Rice and Phillips should both be starting, personally. I don't think tactically that works against lesser opposition in particular. I think there's a ball progression problem there. But, like, everyone seems happy. Everyone seems on board. Everyone seems to be rowing in the right direction. You you can read too much into that. I mean, maybe Jaden Sancho's steaming. Who knows? But, like, they all see, you know, winning helps too. But is there a part of this, you know, as you reflect on sort of what you'd like to see from Arteta, he's got similar issues. I mean, what what is Southgate facing? He's facing a situation where Sancho could absolutely claim he has a right to start and Foden too and Rashford too and Saka too and DCL you know not not even making match day squads you know has a claim to say well I could be a great plan b and so there's a lot of you know there's there's a lot of players in there that might <clears throat> especially in the tack and feel hard done by doesn't seem like that's happening Arteta's got a situation now with I reluctantly reference Willian again but Pepe and Saka and Smith Rowe and Aubameyang and Lacazette if he sticks around and uh, Gabriel Martinelli is certainly an important one that we have to bring in. And maybe we are adding one more to that group. And that's going to be, with no European football, having to keep all of those players happy, content, getting the playing time they need to progress in their career, but doing what's best for Arsenal. I mean, Southgate seems to have that knack. Is that the next thing Arteta is going to have to make sure he has this season, given that it's starting to look like a fun but crowded sort of attacking platoon for Arsenal that all have to be kept happy with a lot less games. Yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, we spoke about this a little bit, didn't we, with Smith Rowe um, as well. Like, what kind of number 10 are you buying, guys? And what's that going to do to my playing time? Um, there, there is definitely that. And how do you get Pepe and Martinelli in, and Aubameyang into the same attack? Because I think that maybe those three are our best attackers. Although, um, you know, it, if you put Saka in midfield, say... Um, but but even even talking like that, like it's not. Uh, but then how do you get Smith Rowe in? Like, yeah, I, I'm uh, like it's a pleasing amount of depth. It's a good problem to have. I think only I, Arsenal I think, fans worry about this to this degree. You won't see a lot of yeah. big clubs too worried about having too many good players. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. Like it, it's it's not a problem, and it's also why we can let William go and we don't even have to replace him because mm. we've got the numbers already. So something that struck me um, with Southgate. Um, he spoke. Uh, he spoke about this, about his desire to involve everyone, um, because he uh, and he did it at the 2018 World Cup. So, like, he he got a bit of criticism because at the end of that group stage, England were already through, and he kind of put out a second eleven against Belgium, and he kind of said that his rationale for that wasn't so much to rest players, but it was to keep players feeling involved. And um, you'll see, uh, you know, the quarterfinal against Ukraine, he makes five subs. But like he brings on guys who probably aren't going to be like Jude Bellingham, like Bellingham. That was his only appearance, I think. And he's probably not going to come on in the final. 
like it just involves them. And he spoke about an experience he had at the 2002 World Cup. So he went to, I think, four major tournaments with England. 96 played every minute of every game. 98, I think he might have played every minute of every game. 2000, he was heavily involved. And then he went to 2002 and he didn't play mm. at all. And he didn't get on. And um, and there were five or six players in that because Spenier and Eriksson did that very like, this is my first 11 and these are my three substitutes. Sorry, everyone else. And he spoke about what a negative experience that was, not just for him, but for the other four or five players who didn't get on and knew they weren't going to get on. And he kind of said that that just disengages the whole, like if you've got four or five or two or three unhappy players, that that has an impact on the entire group, not just on those players. And um, and so it's it's quite a savvy thing that Southgate's done there. And you'll notice in his last two post-match interviews, he has immediately referenced the players he's had to leave out um, of the squad. It's, it's the first thing he's said. He's also done quite a nice job of because you have to leave three players out of the match day squad. He's rotated those players as well. So it's not the same three players mm-hmm. all of the time. So that there is there is quite a lot going on there. I I do think to spin it back to Arteta on the point of um you know the place being happier. I do think he's got some very lived experience of that, and he's referenced that himself about you know he's he's hinted very broadly that some of the players that were kind of um, booted out of the door in January, you know he he spoke about how in the first half of the season that was quite difficult to manage, just having players who weren't involved and, you know, feeling with some level of justification, just disengaged from the whole thing. So I do think he has, he should have enough lived experience of that now. And I, I do think that it is actually one of the things he did quite well with the attack last season. We had a conversation after, you know, after we beat Chelsea on Boxing Day and then we thumped and we beat Brighton and we thumped West Brom. And because Smith Rowe had come in and we thought, ah, we've got our attack made now. And I said on one of those podcasts, but now he's got to involve the other attackers. He's got to involve Pepe. He's got to involve Martinelli. He can't just say, I've got my front front three and that's the end of it. And to his credit, I don't think he did. So I I do think that he's he, he may have some credit in the bank, but he's definitely got some experience there. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I also think by hook or by crook, getting rid of Willian this summer would be such a boon. And again, even if you think Willian was more serviceable than people make out, it is a fairly crowded group. There is no construction of the universe I can think of barring injury crisis where Willian really should be playing this season, given the options we have and the players that we want to prioritize. And having him just sitting there not playing, I think could become pretty bad pretty quickly. I mean, even moving on Lacazette, for that matter, I think would be helpful and it's complicated by the fact that we may want to be bringing in another player in the sort of 8-10 to 10 role, which says, well, where's Smith-Rowe going to go? How do Pepe and Saka shake out? Martinelli, who I think would be the most talented of all of them, has to get more playing time with fewer games this season. It is a, it is a difficult formula that he's going to have to solve. And that leads us, Paul, to the, the question of will we go for someone in that 8-10 role? Because I think starting this summer, we were all like, we got to get Odegaard or we got to get Bendia, or we got to get a war. We got to get a guy in that position. And as the summer's worn on, I've sort of come around to the idea that like, well, Smith Rowe's kind of injury prone, but what if we let the, just roll the dice with Saka, Pepe, Martinelli, Smith Rowe, Aubameyang, and then if Lacazette and Lillian around, fine, and just see where that takes us with fewer games and hope it doesn't bite us. 
and I, I don't have a decision. You lunatic. I, look, I know it's a risk, but, you know, I, I, <laughs> I like to take risks. I don't really worry. That's why my friends don't call me whiskers. But mm. um, I think <laughs> this Awar link is interesting because this, to me, is a deal you do. And the reason mm. this is the deal you do is James Madison at 60 million says every week starter on 140 grand a week, he needs to be a star right now. And I'm not sure that's quite who he is. Awar at 25 million euros. With elite mm. underlying metrics, a bit younger, and a guy you could probably tempt with 70 grand a week or 80 grand a week, says, we can play him when we want. We can ease him in slowly. We can play him at eight. We can play him at 10. But like, he he strikes me as the right combination of very high upside, very tolerable risk, doesn't necessarily have to block anyone's path. It just, it feels like the right combination of factors. It's almost too smart a deal. And therefore, uh, we will do it because we're a very smart club and we don't make mistakes. What do you think? Um, so to the first part of the question, yeah, we, I think we will go for, and let's call it an attacking midfielder. Um, and for the who it might be, well, I, I think it's interesting when you look at the three players we're strong, we've been strongly linked with. Now, maybe the Awar thing is real or not, but it was certainly real last summer. Um, and given that last summer was when it was kind of a, a clean sheet of paper, that would tell you that maybe Awar was very much the profile that that uh, Arteta saw adding to the team. There's been a lot of water under the bridge. Odegaard was here. He did really well. I don't know if that was the perfect profile that we wanted or that's what it was available in January and it worked really well for us. And then it worked well with Smith, him and Smith Rowe because they're kinds of different kinds of attacking players and Smith Rowe can play on the left and they found an accommodation. Um, and then you, we went for, or at least we put our hat in the ring for Buendia. Maybe we just wanted to keep him on the hook long enough to find out if Odegaard was coming or not. And we were hoping to go after him after the Euros but if I take those three profiles, Buendia to me is almost between Awar, who's very much a a toothpaste player um, and attacking eight slash ten, but more in eight than a ten. Got goals in him. He's he's kind of like Kevin De Bruyne as well, but maybe not as quite as creative. Um, but that kind of verticality, you could certainly see him playing in a midfield three with two eights in a V-shape, a kind of a Man City uh, mm. setup. He's going to get you in the box. He's going to get in the box. He carries, he dribbles. Uh, a r- very clever passer, really good balance, really good on the ball, won't lose it. Um, so he's a really interesting profile, I think, Awar. Probably closest to what Arteta has wanted. But Odegaard, I think gives us something more different to what we have in the in uh, the squad now because I don't think Arteta knew he had Smith Rowe last year, not as a starter, not as as a key man he could rely on, a, a promising talent who might begin to contribute during the season, maybe. And now he's got a different challenge. He's got Smith Rowe, and a war is just a little too similar to Smith Rowe. Now, Smith Rowe could play on the wing, uh, but then we've got Martinelli, uh, we got Pepe to get in the lineup somewhere as well. So good problems to have. You can always do rotation. I think we want more of the creative 
Um, I think as well, Madison tends to play on that side a little bit too and <clears throat> is more a war-like. Um, so it'll be interesting to see who we start plumbing for. But Odegaard, an Odegaard type makes the most sense to me because tends to play from the right and tends to be the more creative, more Ozil-like, more about assisting. And Awar is more about getting into the box, uh, having a pop at goal, and being more vertical. So, yeah, I, it, I'm so torn, right? Because the definitely, thing with Odegaard... can I can I come back to one thing? Sorry, um, like we did make the mistake last year of not getting our attacking midfielder, and I wasn't as upset about it. I was like, oh well, we got party. Uh, we'll find a way to configure it, and that was a travesty of an to, error. To be fair, to, to be fair, it's because we had neither yeah. Odegaard or Smith Rowe, right? Like, sure, sure. Like once but, Smith Rowe came in, we beat Chelsea before Odegaard was ever there. So it's a point that yeah. we needed at least one of them. Whether and we needed le- two, the lesson issue. I took from that is you definitely need somebody all season long. Yeah, and mm-hmm. if you think Smith Rowe can play thirty-eight games, great. But I would not bet my managerial career at Arsenal so on this it. I'd it. want two options. I, I don't disagree, but this is it, right? Madison and Odegaard are both going to be big fees, big wages. Yep. They're going to be one of the players in the team that you look to and say, he's our star. We paid for him like he's a star and he has to star for us. And that has ramifications both in terms of whether they're really good enough to be that. Odegaard has the potential but isn't there yet. Madison is in his prime. We know who he is. He'd be playing on a good team in the Premier League, and he's been producing good, but not elite output. Do you want to make that guy your star on huge money? Whereas Awar at 25 million euro, like his underlines are absolutely elite. Tim, I mean, he, I know know people get sick of the data metrics, underlines, all that, but like absolutely elite. As just a finishing thought here, is the combination of, is the combination of a price tag that is appealing underlying metrics that suggest an elite ceiling, but then the versatility of being able to say he's young, he won't be on the biggest wages, we're not paying for him like a star, so we can fit him in, make him a really exciting option with Smith Rowe there, as opposed to bringing in the record-breaking fee, big wage, nailed-on star guy who's got to deliver that way. He was 23 in June, just for those who haven't Googled it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. I I, I think it would make sense on on a number of levels. I mean, Arsenal, you know, we talked about like, um, you know, do they roll the dice and not buy a number 10? And so like one thing is clear, we're going to have to roll a dice somewhere this Mm, summer because we can't get everything done, whether it's right back. I mean, it doesn't look like it's going to be back up left back or number 10 or whatever striker. There's going to be a gap somewhere and we're just going to have to hope it's not exposed the the reason i'm quite attracted to the hour deal is is basically everything you've just said there like i'm not i you know i i think that basically the the price is quoted it's one of those that can't be disastrously wrong or go disastrously bad or be one of those players you know maybe a bit like you know lacazette where it's like yeah he's 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 good he's he's very good but you know, is he really what we need? Did we really need to spend fifty million on, on that player? And th- the other thing is, I think if you sign Awar instead of say Madison, um, albeit I don't think Madison will happen, but I think that makes the Smith Rowe contract talks easier, as well. Like if you're bringing in, you know, a twenty-five year old at twenty-five million, and you're just saying, look, you're going to compete with this guy for a place, but you know, come on back yourself a little bit. Yeah, like, we're a big club is, doing big club stuff versus we bought a guy to yeah. block your path. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, I, I think it comes closer to that balance of kind of saying, look, we can't like if you if if you're ambitious, Emil, and you want us to go where we want to be going, we have to buy another number 10. Like we can't just leave that wide open just for you. Otherwise, we're not going to get past eighth place and that doesn't <clears> suit <throat> either of us. Yeah, no one wants but, to be there. <laughs> but, but like, yeah, but with, with, with our like, I just think it's that kind of look, we bought this guy. And, you know, we might rotate the two of you, you'll compete for a place, but, you know, look, it's not dead set that he's going to come in against you and you should back yourself against this guy. But at the same time, we get a good player in that position who can rotate uh, within the front three. And, uh, yeah, I'd, if it's on, I'd go for it. Yeah, and I mean, there might be people screaming, oh, but, you know, he's a jerk who wants PSG and Barca. That actually suits us great in a way because if he comes in and he's excellent... And so is Smith Rowe. And in three seasons, Barca and PSG want him and he wants them. And he becomes our Coutinho, who we sell for $100 million. All the better in a way, right? Like, you've got a guy that you're also trying to develop who's an academy kid you'd like to keep. Obviously, you always want to keep your good players. But if he gives us three really good seasons and goes for huge money, it works. We'll see what happens. Look, the Lukanga deal looks like it's about to happen. The Tavares deal looks done. The Ben White deal... We'll dive into it again more. I also have a, a specialist on Ben White coming on when the deal happens, assuming it does at 50, 55 million. The business might be about to start to heat up, but it is worth saying that the players are back, they're training, they're with the club, and we've done the sum total of FA, which means that's not the Football Association, it's fuck all. So work to be done now if we want to have a real preseason with the real players there. And I realize the international players can't be. You'd love your new signings to get in the group as fast as possible. So hopefully we'll have more to discuss on that front. Tomorrow uh, we'll have a Patreon pod. We're also going to do a full Euro final preview. So you'll have that um, to get you through the weekend. And um, yeah, if you want to see Lakanga scouting video, Tavares scouting video, Ben White scouting video, and William Saliba scouting video, those are on the Patreon right now. If you want your inflatable unicorn content, just go to our website, click on the shop, and buy up everything Saka with uh, riding an inflatable unicorn because it's a beautiful thing. Pause on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. It's coming home. It's coming home. Well, it's coming home or my arms around you when I hug you in Vegas, my man. Be ready for it. I'm a power <laughs> hugger. Tim, I know you don't like hugs. It's probably the reason you're not coming to Vegas and not at all to do with the fact that you can't be there, but Tim's on Twitter. Still better. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. I'm going to give you a cheeky hug sometime. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. We love you so much. Uh, Denmark fans, sorry. England fans, happy for you. Everybody else, just glad to see that we're living in the world of Bukayo Saka. Uh, we love you, though. Hang in there. There's more to come. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Transfer window nil. Transfer window nil.